Turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. That's my granddaughter right there. As soon as she saw Papa up here, that was it. I don't know what that means. I don't know how to interpret that. (laughs) Anyway, we're glad you're here. And uh, we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're new to us, we've been going verse by verse through the book. We are now at verse 16 of chapter 11. What we normally do is we stand for the reading of God's word. So if you're able to stand with us, why don't you stand up. Matthew 11, picking it up at verse 16. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Jesus is speaking. But to what shall I compare this generation? There's our title for today. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, that's John the Baptist, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man, that's Christ, came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was... This way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then this famous invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and in And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can have a seat. Well, Lord, as we consider these profound verses and we look at a a section where you pronounce a woe on three of the Jewish cities where you did most of your miracles, it is certainly a sobering text. And yet we cannot disconnect it from the invitation that you give at the end of the chapter. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. In other words, repent and turn to the Messiah. And Lord, there are really a couple of audiences in mind here. Ones that uh, would not turn. Ones that would not dance to the music or cry to the dirge. And yet there were others there the apostles and others who did come to you and found ultimate healing and rest for their souls. And Lord, the invitation stands to today. And next week we'll look at that beautiful invitation, but this week we're gonna look at some hard stuff uh, 
some stuff where you pronounce a woe on cities where you spent a ton of time. And there's application for us in our age as well, Lord, because we live in a privileged country where the gospel was the foundation of the nation and where on the airwaves, day after day, there's preaching that goes out on television, radio, and other places. We've been in a privileged position, and with much privilege comes much responsibility. To much is given, much more will be required. So may we have ears to hear what you would say to us. May we have a heart to respond to what the Spirit would say to the church in our age. Would you give us both understanding and application to the text, Lord? May you be pleased by the way that we respond to it, I pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. To what shall we compare this generation? Well, that is the question that Jesus asked of his generation. And he used an image that they're like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now the traditional interpretation of this particular uh, illustration is that Jesus was the one that played the flute and John was the one that sang the dirge. John came, if you remember, in sackcloth and ashes, if you will. He had a camel's hair garment on. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey, a very limited diet. And scholars would say John led an ascetic life. He, he was a man set aside to not participate in the culture. And if you've studied anything on John the Baptist, you know that John really took a Nazarite vow from the time he was born So he did not cut his hair. He did not drink wine. And when he showed up and did his ministry, just about a little bit before Jesus was introduced to the nation, he called the nation to repentance. He he sang the sad song. He sang the funeral songs, if you will, the dirge. Repent and prepare the way of the Lord. Make smooth his paths. And John was a serious preacher. And you remember that John has ended up in a dungeon. He's in prison right now in the setting in which we study because he called out Herod, the wicked king who was married to his brother's wife. And that got John put in a dungeon. And John had questions. And if you're with us last week, John asked those questions through his disciples. And the disciples of John came to Jesus and said, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And Jesus appealed to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And he said, well, go back and tell John what you see. The deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the, de- the uh, lame are walking, the dead are raised. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And so John the Baptist had a word of encouragement with which he could ground his understanding of Messiah within the Old Testament theology, if you will. John could read Isaiah 35 and know Jesus was demonstrating that he was the Messiah by opening deaf ears, raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, touching lepers, etc. And so Jesus gives this word of encouragement. Yes, I am the Messiah, and I came playing the music of the joy of salvation. In Isaiah 61, when Jesus is in his own hometown, this is ahead of us in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's in Luke 4, In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah and he said, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me 
And he goes on and he says to preach the gospel to the poor, to open up prison doors, spiritually speaking, if you will, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It was the time of the Lord's favor. The Messiah had come to the long anticipated, you know, uh, people of Israel. They were waiting. They were wondering, when would he come? And here he was. This was the day of favor. And you remember right there, Jesus stopped at that reading and he didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. If you go back and read Isaiah 61, there's both the favor of the Lord and the vengeance of the Lord. Now, John was probably wondering when the vengeance part was going to happen because he was in a dungeon under a wicked king, and he probably thought, you know what? If he was like a lot of people of that day, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on the throne of David. He's going to overturn the wicked Romans, get them out of our land. He's going to open the literal prison cell so I can get out of here. And we're going to celebrate in the kingdom of God. But Jesus was going into places, kind of unexpected places. He was at, we've jokingly said, IRS parties, remember, at the tax collector's house. He was eating with them, drinking with them. He was, he, uh, reached out to the woman at the well. He would do a lot of different things to touch lepers and be with those kind of outcasts from the religious elite of the day. And the religious elite stood there and watched what Jesus did, and they were unhappy. They said, oh, he's a gluttonous man. Look at him eating. He, he doesn't even fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays like us religious people do. <laughs> How could he be the Messiah? And look, he drinks wine. His first miracle was turning water into wine. So he was there participating. I remember some years ago, I was at, uh, near 6th Street, near the Carl's Jr. right off the freeway. And uh, I tried to witness to a man who was riding on a bike. And it was clear, clear that he was homeless. And he asked me a question about drinking. And it was clear that he was partaking in alcohol as well. And he said, oh, you're a Christian. Well, you know, Jesus drank. And I said, yeah, so what's the relevance of that? Well, don't you think that Jesus, you know, kind of crossed the line sometimes? And I was like, no, sir. He wouldn't break his own word. The Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So no, nice try. But that's not going to fly. But that's kind of what he was hanging his hat on. And some people had come to conclusions that Jesus was overdoing it. He was too much with the people, too much involved in the world, too much sitting with the sinners and you know, participating in the world. And by contrast, John was too serious. Out there in the wilderness, only eating locusts and wild honey. Give me a break, man. Chill out, John. Look at, look at the clothes that he wears. Repent! You know, kind of wild-eyed preacher. That dude's a little too serious. Calm down, man. <laughs> right? And here's what you'll find. When someone is closed off to God, you can't please them by participation, and you can't please them by abstinence. And Walter Martin famously said, Jesus couldn't please the world by participation, John the Baptist couldn't please it by abstinence, so don't think that you're going to please it as well. And here's what happens with skeptics. Skeptics will have a list of objections, but the question is always, are their objections real? 
Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they give you their list of why they're not a believer? And let's just say that you had the ability to remove some objections, like you've studied some apologetics or you're often involved in evangelism and you try to remove obstacles. Let me ask you, if you remove four or five obstacles from that friend, did they just drop on their knees, repent and come to Jesus Christ? A couple of years ago, uh, on a Resurrection Sunday, I anticipated that we would have the CEOs uh, attend, Christmas and Easter only attenders. That's a CEO in the... Okay, and I wasn't trying to be mean to them, but I, I did a message that included a lot of content from a book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Miracles. And if you were here, you will recall this. I played an audio recording of a pastor who had suffered damage to his vocal cords, and in the middle of a sermon, he was healed. His voice comes back to normal. And some of you remember, he was basically croaking out a message, like squeaking, could barely even be heard. They had to put the microphone right up to his mouth just to hear him. And in the middle of the message, the Lord heals his voice. And then I gave miracle after miracle story, probably four or five different, you know, uh, call them modern miracle accounts that have been well-documented, etc. But I would ask you the question, how many of those visitors on that Resurrection Sunday do you think came back the following Sunday? Now, maybe a few of them did, but I have a feeling that the, whole, the most of them did not come back, even though I actually shared modern-day miracle accounts and gave them an evidence of an actual one they could hear. Do you know why I'm bringing this out? Here's why. Because miracles... Don't convert people. Jesus is about to say that the people of these three Jewish cities saw more miracles than the Bible even documents. The Bible says in John 21 that if everything that Jesus uh, did was recorded, even the libraries of the whole world could not hold the content. There's much, much more that Jesus did when he was here, and perhaps we'll hear of those miracle stories when we're finally with the Lord in the kingdom of God. I don't know. But my point is simply this. John couldn't please them with his ministry and neither could Jesus please them. And some people will not be pleased no matter what you give them because that's not the issue. The issue is they're hanging their hat on their objections so that they don't need to repent or they think they don't need to repent. And Jesus is going to make an argument for the more you hear, the more light you're given, the more accountable you are. And I want you to think at the beginning of this message about the country in which you and I live. The United States of America has been a very privileged nation. Our first president laid his hand on the Bible unapologetically and prayed to God. And he knew that our form of government could only work by a people that were governed by a higher authority, that is God Almighty. And they unashamedly at continental congresses and so forth spent hours in prayer over this nation. But here we are today and we have to ask some questions about our nation and how are we responding to the light that we've been given. I'll pause on that just for a second so we can come back to the text. But there's John in prison and he's reeling from all that's happened to him and Jesus begins to say all these good things about John, that he was a prophet, indeed more than a prophet, and he begins to you know, extol what John did. And then he says these words. Look back just for a second. For all the prophets, verse 13, and the law prophesied until John. John was the bridge, if you will, from the old to the new covenant. And if you care to accept it, 
He, John himself, is Elijah who was to come. If you're taking notes, write down Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you were with us last week, I spent a good amount of time talking about how John the Baptist, according to Jesus, that's Jesus' interpretation, is the Elijah who was to come from Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. What is that? What's the significance of that? Well, the Jewish people were waiting for this Elijah to come to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, John is Elijah in quotes. Therefore, that's more evidence that I am the Messiah. Now, we also made an argument that there's most likely an Elijah-like figure to come in the last days before the second coming of the Lord. But here we're just looking at this immediate context. And Jesus says, John is Elijah to come, and that makes you even more accountable to who I am. But there's John in prison. And before we close the book on John just for a second, John's still wondering, right? What do you think John's biggest question must have been? Probably something like this. When is judgment coming? I preached that the axe was at the root in Matthew 3.10 and that the Messiah was going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When is that coming? I'm hearing about your great miracles. I'm hearing about the things that you are doing, but how about the judgment day? See, you don't want judgment day when you're sitting on a beach, but if you're in a prison, you want judgment day. Amen? Kind of depends. We, we go back and forth. We say Maranatha one day and then, oh, Lord, could you put off your coming for a while on another day? Well, John was wondering about the judgment piece, and this is what it says in Revelation 6, 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out, Revelation 6, 10, with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the famous souls underneath the altar in Revelation 6, 9. And their singular question is, when are you going to avenge our martyr's blood? And they're pictured up in heaven asking God. And God says to them, wait a little while longer until the full number of the, the saints comes in and dies in this way as well. God's even sovereign over that, as hard as it may be to understand. And so there's John and Jesus now shifting to the generation says, well, they're like kids who, when the flute was played, think of wedding music. They didn't dance. Verse 17, when the dirge was sung by John, they wouldn't mourn. They just couldn't be pleased. Now, I don't know how you guys are at weddings, but, you know, weddings always lead up to the dance time. And as a pastor, it's a little awkward, you know, should the pastor get up and dance? What will people think, you know? When Brenda and I got married, we had a very Italian wedding, a lot of Italian people there, and you couldn't help but get up and dance, right? I mean, there was music going on, and, and, and there was a, a kind of a line where people were holding one another's shoulders, and you couldn't help, you know, hey! You can't sit in the corner and drink your punch at an event like that. But we all know that sometimes when the dance music starts, some of us sit there with our arms crossed. I'm not, I'm not getting, into, I'm not going over there. And in some of your cases, it's a good thing that you don't. 
And some of us have found a spot where, you know, we could just kind of be right here, stand in the pocket, you know, not moving too much. But even that, you can get some sideways looks at the pastor, the pastor. What's he doing out there? And that's kind of how people were with Jesus. What's, if he's the Messiah, what's he doing over there at a party? Why is he eating food with them? And doesn't he know what kind of people they are? Shouldn't he be up on a mountain with a bunch of people in robes looking very serious like they just ate a banana upside down? <laughs> Don't smile in here. And then when John played the dirge, when he called the nation to repentance, they're like, dude, a little too heavy, uh, lighten up. And Jesus said, look, you wouldn't dance at the wedding music that I played. You wouldn't embrace the moment. The day of salvation had come. The Lord of salvation had arrived, and you wouldn't dance. And then when John tried to prepare the way to get you to do a little reflection and a little thinking about where the nation had been and how far they had moved from God, none of you would cry. All you could do is dismiss John or say, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the expected one? No, 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 no. But I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Do you hear the words? Crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Get ready. Don't miss it. He's here. And that's what happened. And that generation was accountable. Key phrase, if you're a note taker, Underline this generation. To what shall I compare this generation? Now, of course, we live in the time that we live, so we can't help but think about the contemporary moments that we live in. But Jesus of Nazareth, if you will, was addressing his generation. And if we think back to John's question for a moment, John's asking about justice, judgment. O'Donnell comments, he says, Jesus is not simply saying, John, who can raise the dead or who can give blind sight? Look and listen, I'm so powerful, I must be the Messiah. He's saying, Scripture says that when Messiah comes, these miracles will happen and so will judgment. I, have, I haven't forgotten about the judgment part of the promise. In fact, I'll start with a bit of judgment the moment I'm done disquieting your doubts, close quote. And you probably notice that Jesus is now going to pronounce multiple woes in the passage after he addresses his generation. I just want to give you a quick snapshot where this generation is used in a couple other places. If you do a concordance search, uh, you'll find this. Turn over to uh, Matthew 12, next page, 41, 42. Take a look. Jesus says these words, and he's responding to their requests for a sign, though he had done so many. Matthew 12, 41 says, The men of Nineveh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, will stand up with this generation, mark it, this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, or someone greater. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment, there's that, this generation again, and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something or someone greater than Solomon is here. I want you to flip all the way to Matthew 23 for a second. 
Matthew 23, this is the end of where Jesus pronounces woes on the religious leaders of the day. If you go back and read the chapter, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe, woe, woe. He pronounces all of these judgments on them. And he says in Matthew 23, look at uh, verse 35. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon, here's the phrase again, this generation. Then he begins to lament how Jerusalem kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often he, he gave the invitation. He wanted to gather their children the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But they were what? Unwilling. And then he famously says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then one more. In the famous Olivet Discourse, which is the very next chapter, Matthew 24, Jesus says these words. Matthew 24, look at verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that's a future study and we'll get into that when we're there. But back, back to Matthew chapter 11. If you are interested and you want to do a concordance search on this generation, that phrase, you will find adjectives where, in other places where it's found like this wicked generation, this perverse generation, this unbelieving generation, this adulterous generation. If you're taking notes, Matthew 12, 39 and 45. Matthew 16, 4, and Matthew 17, 17. Strong rebukes to a tough crowd. And Jesus was calling out his generation for the privileged position that they had, and yet they did not take advantage. Look at Matthew eleven eighteen. For John came neither eating nor drinking. He didn't eat uh, their bread or drink their wine. And they say he has a demon. Can you imagine that? John the Baptist, that fiery, spirit-filled preacher, and they accused him of being demon-possessed. That's blasphemy. Notice what else they said. The Son of Man, that's Jesus describing himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, here's, this is what they said about him. He's a gluttonous man and a drunkard. That's, that's like saying the Messiah is a drunk, he belongs in the category of a person who's an alcoholic. The friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet, notice, wisdom, and the Bible's filled with wisdom literature, is vindicated by her deeds. What's Jesus saying? How many miracles did you watch me do? How many miracles have you heard about? How could I stand at the tomb of Lazarus and say, after a man had been dead four days, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man comes out of the tomb? Can you imagine standing at a cemetery and see that happen? Would you believe that the guy who called to the other side of the grave had some power? Would you believe he was the Messiah? You know what the religious leaders did after that? They put a hit on Lazarus and Jesus. They tried to kill them both to shut them up. Now, if you saw that, wouldn't that be enough? But that wasn't the issue for them. They, were, they wallowed in their unbelief. 
And Jesus says, look at my deeds. Look how I've touched the blind, opened the ears of the deaf, healed lepers, raised the dead. How could you deny, if you have a moment just of wisdom in your, a little bit of wisdom in your brain, how could you deny who I am? Don't my deeds, don't my works back it up? James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. Now that's the Messiah. No one could follow him around and deny, no one walking in wisdom could deny that he is God, that he is the Messiah. Now it gets harder. Then Jesus began to denounce or reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done. What's your Bible say, brethren? Because they what? They did not repent. Matthew 3, 1, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John the Baptist. Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's Jesus. The singular call to the nation was to repent. And it echoes 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. If they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will what? I will heal their land. The Lord says basically, if you would just simply understand the times, know the moment of history in which you live and turn, you would be saved. And so as he reproaches the cities, he starts with two of the three uh, just a quick note, if you look at a map in Israel and you go up to the northern part of Israel above the Sea of Galilee, there's th- there'd be three dots on the map and it would be Capernaum, uh, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. They're all probably within about five miles of each other historically. So Jesus did a ton of miracles right in these places. And so he calls out two of the three right here in verse 21. Notice with a woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities to the northwest of uh, the Galilee region, if they would have had the miracles occur in them, which occurred in you, what, what would have happened? They would have repented long ago, and they would have put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, whenever you see the word woe in the Bible, it's not from an old rock and roll song. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> It's rather a statement of judgment mixed with pity. In Revelation 8.13, if you're taking notes, there's three woes pronounced on the people that are about to experience the trumpet judgments. Woe, woe, woe. Revelation 8.13, for what's about to come on mankind. Jesus pronounces a woe on these three cities very much in the character and keeping of Old Testament prophets. I'm going to give you an example. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament, chapter 13. Okay, we're going to turn to a few spots and read a little bit. Um, I know you can handle it, (laughs) but the first one is a, a little bit longer of a section, but it is so incredibly powerful. Let me just explain to set this up. In Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, there are 10 woes or oracles pronounced on different nations. Starting with Babylon, it includes Israel, Egypt, Philistia, and other nations. The first one is, is written to Babylon. This is going to give you a feel for what 
Jesus is doing by pronouncing the woe. Take a look. Isaiah 13 will be up on the screen. The oracle concerning Babylon 13, one of Isaiah, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. He was a seer, so he saw the prophecy, if you will. Lift up the standard. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I've commanded my consecrated ones. I've called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones to execute my anger. So God's calling these warriors now to be the instrument of his anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They're coming from a far country. From the farthest horizons, the Lord and, and his instruments of indignation. So this foreign army is his tool to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, 13.6. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will ride like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Just write Raiders of the Lost Ark in your margin right there. If you haven't seen the scene, repent and go see the movie. It's an older movie now. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Day of the Lord imagery. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place and the fury of the Lord of hosts at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be like, it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people, each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through. Anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces, sadly, before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. This is about as ugly a scene as you can get. Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes. You've all heard of the Medes and the Persians. Media is an ancient nation that uh, conquered Babylon in our own world history. Notice, I'm going to stir them up, says God, to be my tool. They will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. They're not coming for the treasures of Babylon. Their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion, sadly, on pregnant women on the fruit of the womb nor will they pity their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but desert creatures will lie down there. Their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, almost as a laughing mockery to the glory of Babylon. Jackals in their luxurious palaces. No people left to enjoy that. 
Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. Now, I could give you much more. Like in the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he says, turn to the Lord and be saved, because I don't take pleasure in your death. I would rather have you repent and live. And we could turn to many prophets, but I want you to see that in the book of Isaiah, if you flip over to chapter 22, that Israel is not spared from this list of judgments because the prophet gives another oracle, Isaiah 22. We won't read uh, but about six verses, but take a look. There's an oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a sarcastic way of describing Jerusalem, who had all these visions given to prophets in her history. Notice what happens now. Here's the weighty woe, if you will, to the Valley of Vision, Jerusalem. What is the matter with you now? Do you have a friend like that? <laughs> all right, what's the matter now? If you're Italian, what's the matter with you? That you have all gone up to the housetops, you, you who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exalted city. Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They ran away, and you could actually document this in Israel's history, and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Now the prophet's saying, don't look at me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Sometimes the job of a prophet wasn't fun. Jeremiah said, my eyes are like water running down. Why, Jeremiah would say, paraphrasing to the Lord, why have you caused me to see such things? I didn't want to see these kinds of things. Nor did I want to prophesy them. And as Isaiah is preaching, he was told at the beginning of his ministry, you will keep on preaching, but they won't listen. You'll say to this people, keep on hearing, but you won't hear. Keep on seeing, but you won't see. For the heart of this people has grown dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and with their eyes they barely see. Lest they should return to me with all their heart, and I would what? heal them. And so Isaiah said, have you ever been there before where you're kind of breaking down and your lips quivering and you don't want people to look at you? That's how the prophet felt. Now, we're going to go forward to Isaiah 55, and I want to show you something hopeful. Often when the prophets preach this way, brought an oracle or a heavy message, Isaiah 55, and then we'll move on to one more place, they would kind of fold in some hope. Here's the hope. 55.1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, 55.1, without money and without cost. It's free. It's paid for. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Can't help but think of Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, 
I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I want you to see in the text that as Jesus looks at his generation, I tell you, I sat at my desk this week, and as I was contemplating what this scene must have looked like as he pronounced the woes, my heart broke for our Savior. Because he had to be thinking, you know what? I was right here within a touch of your hand. You heard my voice. You saw my miracles. But some of you brushed by me like a stranger in the crowd and didn't give it a second thought. You saw a miracle and you went back to your normal life and you didn't hear. You didn't understand the time in which you were living. You didn't recognize the day of your visitation. I'm here. Everyone who lived before you Long to see the days that you see and they did not see them and you've seen them and yet you have easily dismissed the moment. That's what Jesus is saying. And the prophets said it as well. I'm gonna have you turn to one more. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. You're like, really, Pastor Michael? You're gonna make us turn to the book of Joel on a Sunday morning? Yes, I am. Turn to the book of Joel. Let me just tell you, if you're serious about your Bible, you should know where the book of Joel is. And by the way, you could read the book of Joel in 15 minutes. And I'm not joking around. It's only four chapters. But here's what, something I want to say. I'm going to get my preacher's high horse for a second. We've got to do a better job of knowing our Bibles. You know, Spurgeon Spurgeon looked out at his congregation and he said, you know what scares me? That the only time you guys open your Bible is when I'm preaching to you. Spurgeon said that scared him for his people. I just want to say to you, we've got to know God's word. The the light, fluffy, candy-coated sermons ain't going to cut it, folks. They're not going to give you a full understanding of what you need to know. Amen? And how to understand the Bible. So here's Joel chapter 2. Just for the sake of time, it's uh, a day of the Lord image captured in a locust plague compared to an army that's coming in to devastate. And it says of this army, Joel 2.10, before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness, Joel 2.11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, Once again, using an army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed very great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. I don't need the religious ceremony. I want your heart. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Back to Matthew, and we'll finish. 
Here is Jesus very much in the way of Old Testament prophets preaching to the cities that he ministered to. And he said in Matthew eleven twenty two. back to look at, uh, yeah, 22. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And he's talking about Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now let's just pause here for a second. I'm not sure how this all works out. Like when the Lord talks about the judgment that happens on a city in judgment day, what does that mean? Well, cities are made up of people. And so people live and die in every generation. And based upon where you lived, the light you were given, your judgment will come from God perfectly just based upon the light that you were given. To much is given, much will be required. If you had very little light, then it seems like your judgment will be more tolerable. Won't be that you won't be judged. It'll just be more tolerable than others. Here's the accountability issue. So he says it'll be more tolerable uh, for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. Notice Jesus says a day of judgment is coming than for you. Look at the next one. And you, Capernaum, Jesus' adopted hometown, he now addresses, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? No, you won't. Uh, Being exalted to heaven is reminiscent of Isaiah 14, where the king of Babylon said he was going to raise up his throne up to the heavens with the stars. Some believe that's a direct uh, prophecy to Lucifer, Isaiah chapter 14, and he would be kicked out, if you will. Jesus says of Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you? No. You shall descend to Hades. That is the place of the dead or the place of judgment. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Now, Sodom, in the mind of a Jewish listener, was the worst city you could ever think of. The worst If you go to Israel today, there is the ashes of Sodom near a place called the Sea of Salt. It's also known as the Dead Sea. There is a figure there made up of salt that they call Lot's wife. Kind of looks like this. (laughs) Remember, Lot's wife. If you go to the Sea of Salt It is a 35 or so percent mineral content. And without the little floaties on, you could read your morning newspaper, walk in there and float because there's so much mineral content, it'll hold you up. But you can't stay in there longer than 15 minutes because if you stay 15 minutes, your skin will be nice. They have Dead Sea products. Ladies put on those scary masks, you know. "Ah!" Anyway, never mind. And not just ladies. And... They, they sell all over the world, but they say to you, there's a clock there because if you stay beyond 15 minutes, it'll suck the life right out of you. It'll kill you. It'll dehydrate you, shut down your organs and kill you. So you want to be precise with your time there uh, near the Sea of Salt. Now, the Sea of Salt is underneath ashes. You go to that part of the world, uh, archaeologists will tell you there's evidence of this, the area being burned. And if you know the biblical story... It was burned with what? Genesis 19, fire and brimstone. And two angels showed up at the city 
to tell Lot and his family, get out of town. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And Lot's son-in-laws laughed at him. They didn't believe him. So he invited the angels in. Do you remember what happened? And the men of the town came knocking at the door and wanted to be with the angels, if you know what I'm saying. They wanted to have sex with these men. And the angels struck them with blindness. And the men went about groping for someone to hold on to or something to hold on to. And Jesus says, those guys... If they saw the miracles that have been done in Capernaum, they would have repented long ago and Sodom would still be standing if they saw the miracles that were done in you. Now, if you're someone in Capernaum who's seen a bunch of miracles, are you starting to gulp a little bit? (laughs) Whoa, this is Jesus now. And I know it's not light stuff, but it's what Jesus said. It's a solemn thought. He says, the worst city ever would have repented and remained if they saw everything that you have seen. And then, nevertheless, I say to you that it'll be more tolerable. There again, levels of judgment for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Again, we say, to much is given, much will be required. Now, If Jesus were to address our generation, I wonder what he might say. And you, Corona! (gasps) Wait a minute, I was just sitting in the stands up to this point. Now it's personal. Yeah, because we live in a very privileged nation. Do you know, people who have looked at the world and its history say that the only thing that has made the world tolerable over the last several thousand years is Christianity. Now, I know that the opponents of Christianity will say, yeah, but there was a lot of problems, right? Yeah, there was some problems, and the church did some ugly things over her history, no doubt. But people who took Jesus at his word and the Bible at its word overturned slavery, saved babies who were discarded by other people. They got involved in human rights Because they obeyed their Lord, they wanted to do what was right and true. They were the best citizens of all. Yes, you could say there were people who, in the name of Christ, did all kinds of terrible stuff, and that's very true. But anyone who took the Lord at his word did what was right and true, and, and I know that that's the heart of the folks here today. What if Jesus said, you, Riverside County, you, Orange County, You, Southern California. What if he said, you, the United States of America? What do you think that he might say to us today? Would he pronounce a woe? Would he say, I think maybe it would be mixed. I think he would say, well done to the remnant, to those who are trying to do the right thing. But generally speaking, here we are a nation of privilege. What might he say? And what should we do about it? Do you know our merciful God in America has given us multiple revivals, several great awakenings at times in our history when it seemed it was about as dark as things could be. In the 60s, when the hippies were doing their thing and everything seemed to be chaotic and there was war and drugs and all the stuff that went with it, 
all of a sudden there was a revival that occurred, something called the Jesus Movement. You guys have seen the, the movie, but there's been other revivals before that. In fact, recently in the last several months, whatever you may think of it, on college campuses, revival has broken out in America. Now, how far spread it is and how do you measure, you know, the authenticity of all that? I'll let you decide that. But that's pretty good news when our college-age students are saying, we need to come back to God. And I'll say this. For those of you who are younger and you're of that generation where it seems like all we ever do is talk about you poorly. Oh, you know, those guys. Millennials. <laughs> Well, let me tell you, I see some incredibly strong millennials who are our future leaders, who are standing on the truth of Jesus Christ. And some of the evidence, even in polls, are coming back that young people are recognizing that they need the Lord. And my prayer for you guys is that you will lead the next revival. Rather than, you know, I don't know what the Lord's going to do. The Lord could come in our lifetime. I don't know. But if he doesn't come in our lifetime, would to God that we have another revival. Amen? Would to God that we return and find the blessing of the Lord instead of the disfavor of the Lord. Would to God that the United States of America shines her light all over the world because the Christian faith is strong. Are we being opposed today? Of course we are. Are people mocking the faith? Yes, they are. But here we are. And so it's our moment, right? It's our, this is our generation. What are we going to do? My prayer would be that we'd repent. We'd get serious about our walk with the Lord. We'd go and make disciples of all the nations, and we do what we're called to do. Because this is the life that we have. Amen? Now, next week... I'm going to do something that I haven't done from this pulpit maybe ever. I'm going to ask you to invite a friend next week. Here's why. Because next week, we're going to uh, look at the beautiful invitation from Jesus. And I, I want to end on a positive note and tell you that part of this message, after he pronounces the woe, he says, come to me, all you who labor are heavy laden. In other words, just like the Old Testament prophets of old, he says, look, there's a way there's a way out. There's a way to answer all of this. Just come to me. You don't need to come to religion. You, need to, you don't need to come to a party, a political party or something otherwise, or a denomination. You come to me. All you who are weighed down by life, all you who see the culture for what it is, you come to me and I will remove your burdens. I will lift the anxiety and the pressure that you feel. I will give you rest. I am the answer. Remember, yes, he preaches a hard sermon, but he's coming to die mercifully on the cross for us. And so next week, we're going to study that in some depth. And my prayer is that many in our culture, many in your families, many friends will come and hear Jesus's heart. That though, yes, he pronounces this woe, yet he is the answer to everything that ails us. Come. Father, help us as we think about our generation and we think about the privileges that we've enjoyed in our nation and we think about our work in the community and our desire to see many people have the ultimate burden lift off, lifted off their shoulders, the burden of sin and death. 
We're all mortal. We all have big questions, Lord. And thank you that you came. You entered time and space. You were born on that starry Bethlehem night. Miracle of miracles, God came to live among us. Thank you for your perfect life, your life of mercy and grace, how you played the flute, the joy of salvation. You, you had the oil of joy above your companions. You went around doing good. You are good. And many responded. Many entered the dance. Many went into the wedding hall. And you've saved millions of people over that period of time as we reflect on church history. And here we are, and that same Jesus still saving, transforming lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing what you did to die on that terrible cross and be treated as if you had committed the collective sins of all of us. Rising from the dead, facing death itself off and removing its stinger and triumphing just as you said, bringing life and immortality to light through the good news of the gospel. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be refreshed in the Holy Spirit, more committed than ever to our mission. Thank you for your mercy in my life. I, I need to repent seemingly every day of my weakness and my humanity and my struggles and I'm sure others could relate, but thank you for honoring that and giving us grace. Every day we wake up, your mercies meet us. You're so good to us. Would you just take a moment as you meditate on God's word? Maybe this is the moment where you trust Christ for the first time. Maybe this is a moment where you make your faith your own, where you decide you're gonna follow Jesus in your generation. Hear the voice of the Spirit, and Father, my prayer is anything I've said that's not of value, that they'll forget it. Anything from you that's valuable and kingdom-oriented, let them both remember and put it into practice. Thank you for this wonderful congregation, Lord, and the impact that they make in the community and throughout the world. Would you bless them, keep them, let your beautiful face shine upon them, be gracious to them, Give them shalom, give them peace. We can be still and know that you are God. We don't have to fret. We can trust our generation into your capable hands. And we thank you for the time we've had together. In Jesus' name.